Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do our best to try to worship God in spirit and in truth. We pray that His Spirit will be with us tonight. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Podcasts are now available um, five days a week, Seth tells me. That means every weekday, Monday through Friday, there's a new podcast available if you want to subscribe. The Apple device is there on the website. The Android device is there on the website. And all the other stuff, I have no idea what it means. But uh, you can get a daily dose either of Heart of the Matter or of Campus through the podcast. And I guess they're growing in popularity. So thank you, Seth, for setting that up. I have gathered hundreds, maybe thousands of pages of information that we need to consider (coughs) in our topic on the Bible and its place and purpose in the body today. A number of things that are going to be really interesting. I'm really excited to be involved in that with you uh, this year. But I, as I was trying to prepare in that vein, I just couldn't help but going back to typing out thoughts I had uh, with our meeting with Pastor Wallace last week. So I'm going to cover some of those things that I believe are really important, not only to us as Christians and Christian life, but to making uh, the path to understanding our approach more tenable. Uh, if you haven't, if you aren't aware, last week we had the, uh, the honor of sitting with Pastor Jason Wallace from the Orthodox Presbyterian Church here in Utah in a first attempt to try to bridge the gap in between our very divergent views of Christianity today. For those of you who don't know, Jason hosts, Pastor Wallace hosts a show called Ancient Paths, which appeals greatly to religious tradition, including including an absolute allegiance to Calvinism. Now, I have to add, out of respect for Pastor Wallace, that the Calvinism he gives his allegiance to is the Calvinism that he says is clearly understood and not the form that has been adulterated over time. Especially, uh, basically, he wants to be known for following what Calvinism really, truly is, pure Calvinism. I, on the other hand, reject almost all religious orthodoxy and believe that Christianity since 70 AD is subjectively lived and understood by individual believers by the power of the Holy Spirit working on individuals who have come to understand who Jesus is, of course, through missional efforts, sharing the word, very important. So I'm going to build my case for how I see Christianity in these terms on the show for this year. I'm really grateful, though, for the opportunity to engage with Pastor Wallace. And we thank everybody who attended, took the time to come, who's uh, the 2,500 plus, 2,600 who have watched the two-hour-long special. And uh, no matter what side of the fence you're on, Pastor Wallace promised to air our uh, meeting uh, on his program unedited, and he did, as promised, the first half last week. Uh, The second half will air tomorrow night here in Salt Lake City on Channel 20 at 8 p.m. There's a couple of main points that were touched on that I want to address and reiterate about our time together last week. First, I do want Jason to know that I love and respect him and I consider him a devout Christian brother, even though I wince at some of the things that he believes and teaches. This is one of the major points of what I call subjective Christianity. Uh, Doctrines of disputable matters ought not to divide us as brothers and sisters, but must simply be allowed to be. Um, Of course, we will critique I will talk about Calvinism for sure, but not those who believe in Calvinism. Just about the tenets themselves to give people a chance to decide how they want to believe. 
what are not disputable matters? In other words, what are the non-negotiables in Christianity? The gospel, you know, the, the good news. Outside of the gospel, as defined by the Bible, almost everything else seems to be sort of up in the air as far as I can tell. And I know that, I honestly believe God intended it to be this way because he could have, as we stated on the show last week, given us a Bible that was, you know, a page long. And it just said, this is what it is. And in his, his ability, he could have just articulated exactly what he wanted us to know so there'd be no divisions or, but it, he didn't do that. So I realize saying this will get some people's dander up, but try and understand what I, I, I am really saying. I do teach the Bible emphatically, and I don't back off on what it says. If the Bible in context said that God wears a pink wig, I would teach it. I promise you that. But no matter how emphatically I have and will continue to teach the Bible, I refuse to make other people accept my views but we instead try to give everybody the liberty to decide by the Holy Spirit what they're going to accept, what they're going to reject, and love them as part of the family of Christ. Anyway, no matter what. So Sunday comes along, and I stand and I teach that there is only one God, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he rose, uh, that he suffered, he died, was buried, he rose on the third day, that he was seen by witnesses, that a person must be born again to see the kingdom of God, that there's no other way to heaven than through faith on the finished work of Christ Jesus, and 322,000 other things that the Bible talks about, right? Of those who hear me, 1% might foolishly agree with everything I happen to say, and maybe 10% will agree with 60% of what I have to say, and 20% might agree with 10% of what I have to say, and the rest will remain unsure of what they think anyway. So what? I mean, so freaking what? If everybody has a different view on a little topic here or a little topic there or a big topic, who cares? We're all there on, in church on Sunday. We're all trying by the Holy Spirit that has been given to us to seek God and to worship in spirit and truth. And if we all walk out motivated to greater faith and to greater love, um, what's the big cause for concern? I fully trust the power of the Holy Spirit as it works in people's lives. And I don't have to sweat the transitory stances people will make in the way they believe or think. That's not our job. I, I'm not going to name names, but there are people out there whose sole ministry is to police the body and to truly assassinate people and, and, and in and out, I mean, it's everywhere. This person, they don't conform to this this way. And, and I just don't see how denominationalism and unauthorized religious men have any power according to the word. This is what they say. They say, this is the way to see this disputable matter. Disputable. And there's no liberty or getting around it. Anyway, sign the dotted line, become a card-carrying member, pay your tithes, you will be accepted as a worthy believer, challenge our way in any unestablished manner, and your Christianity will be called into question, Buster, or Miss, Mister, Mrs. <laughs> so 
this is what I mean by doctrine doesn't matter. Okay? I look at I teach doctrine all the time, constantly. But the point is every individual has to have the right and the responsibility to do what they want with it and remember that what does matter in the end is that they continue on in faith and that the teachings somehow are motivating people to want to follow Jesus and believe in him and to love others in his name. Speaking of love, from the email responses we got about the show, the pivotal moment seems to be when Jed Casper got up and in his wisdom, he, he gets this, I, I, it comes from God, Jed has a propensity to do this, he asked, does everybody who, everybody who loves him raise your hand? And uh, Pastor Wallace declined to raise his hand. And when he was asked why, he said, I don't know you, Jed. Immediately thereafter, my daughter, Cassidy, followed up Jason, uh, the question, and said to Jason, what do you need to know about Jed to love him? And most people suggest that this was the, the apex of the whole thing, of the two hours. These series of short events led to a whole bunch of emails and discussions, with most of them reiterating that Jesus commanded us to love even our enemies. And so not knowing another person could never be, in the Christian sense of things, an excuse not to love them. My, my friend Brandon uh, P., he pointed out to me today that uh, when Jesus was teaching, he said, love your neighbor. And he was asked, who's my neighbor? And that led him to teach the story of the Good Samaritan, who not knowing the beaten fellow at the side of the road, showed him love, and love is a verb, and took time and took money and took care to help this person, while the Levite and the priest passed him by. So while I absolutely agree with this opinion, I have to personally apologize to Pastor Wallace. And I'm apologizing for sh shaking my head in disbelief at his response. I visually gave uh, a, a, just a shake of the head in a kind of a mocking way. See, for me to claim subjective Christianity is the way, I have to accept the fact that Jason feels justified in withholding love from some people and that this attitude, while I believe it is unbiblical, is between Jason and God. And he has the right to that opinion as a believer. And I don't have the right to mock him for his choice, which I did. So where we can and will teach that love is the end desire of everything in Christianity, I have to realize and accept that every individual believer has the right to reject this notion, and it's incumbent on me to love and respect him anyway. So I failed to respect him in that, in that sense. It only comes in hindsight with me sometimes. I, I realize through emails and things, this is what I've done. And that's why I'm a jackass. Because I can't see myself until it's after the fact, and then I realize what occurred. So I'm sorry, my brother. Because you have that right to believe that you don't need to love someone that you don't know. Finally, while admitting from the onset that our meeting, from the onset when we sat down, that meeting like that, does not accomplish very much typically, we are still left with two widely divergent views represented by Pastor Wallace and myself. Admittedly, Pastor Wallace has the weight of history behind his position. We have to admit that. And 
it readily illustrates that weight of history that brick and mortar institutions and men with authority uh, in God's name who see themselves as having authority in God's name have been the norm. That has been the norm for t nearly 2,000 years. On the other hand, I'd like to point out that this brick and mortar, mortar pseudo-authoritarian approach, while present in various forms for a thousand plus years, has, in my opinion, been a fail when we consider what Jesus really stood for and then compare what these historical physical churches have done in his name. So he has the evidence that it has gone on, and they can say that that tradition shows us how important it has been. But to me, what that tradition shows, when we really weigh it out, it's done nothing but get in the way of God's Holy Spirit working in individuals. Had those brick-and-mortar churches focused on just sharing the good news and not on matters of dispute and making sure there was reform in people's lives and holding people's uh, toes to the fire, so to speak, no pun intended, and all the other stuff that they have done, we would have a different story, but that's not what they have focused on. So as stated, we're going to continue to provide supports for this stance in the coming weeks and months, but I would really appreciate it. I am seriously requ requesting this, that somebody just reasonably explain to me, using the Bible, not your opinion, not conjecture, not church history, not Tertullian, and not uh, the creeds, I want you to use the Bible and justify denominationalism. Justify the erection of brick and mortar churches that have tried to replicate or replace the, replicate the New Testament model and those claims of those who work in these brick and mortar institutions to authority. Someone please show me where this comes from. I am serious. If you can prove it to me, I'll change. But so far, all I hear are just opinions of what it should be and not anything from the Bible saying this is how it is. You see? So please don't write your version. Substantiate your position in, in clear, simple biblical terms. I honestly don't think it can be done. I, I just really don't. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I received an email from David. He admonished me, like the LDS are fond of doing, to come back to the fold. That's what David said. He insinuated that I have fallen prey to false teachings and need to rejoin what he called the flock. At least when the LDS tell you to come back to the fold, there's a literal fold that they are telling you to come back to. It's a brick-and-mortar institution, authority on down. And when they say come back, you know what that means, right? So what fold or flock does David want me to return to? In my opinion, it's entirely driven by the Spirit, and by my definition, I've never left the fold. I have not stopped believing in Christ Jesus. I haven't stopped believing in Him as God in the flesh. I haven't stopped believing as the author and finisher of my faith. None of that has changed in me whatsoever. What fold have I departed from? Isn't the fold that I'm in with that of other believers constituted on the shed blood of Jesus, the author and finisher, a fold that loves and teaches the Bible, a fold that seeks to love God and man, a fold that shares the good news? Am I not of this fold? What removed me from the fold that David wants me to come back to? Or is David suggesting I come back to a brick and mortar fold of some sort. If that's the case, I have to ask, which one, David? Which one do I come back to? 
I think the Bible clearly teaches a house of believer is not a house of stone made with hands. It's made of believers. If the historical church is supposed to continue on from what Christ established by his apostles, and it truly represents one faith, one Lord, one baptism, that's quoting scripture, captured in brick and mortar and governed by men with authority, I want to know which one it is. Which one is it? Okay? This goes back to the whole Mormon thing. It goes to the Catholic thing. It's, it's all the same. Which one faith? Which one God? Which one baptism? The Baptists? Which flavor of Baptists do I join? The Methodists? The Presbyterians? The Catholics? The Church of Christ? Listen really closely. Using this very argument, I did this as an LDS missionary, they tell people a thousand times a day around the world that their brick-and-mortar church has the authority, it has the right doctrines, it has the right everything. And they base this off the same premise that from Christ out today there is a true church. Okay? And so if they are saying there's a true brick-and-mortar church, and other churches today that are Christians support that, we are fighting a losing battle. We're never going to win, and we will always be fighting with each other. It is for these very reasons that Christianity in our day and age needs to turn from its brick-and-mortar applications as being requisite, and to now admit that doctrine and traditions cannot take precedence over love garnered by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by His Spirit. Listen. It is this position, this position, no matter what the Calvinists and the King James only say and the other dogmatists maintain, that will take the wind right out of the LDS sails. You see, when the Christian community can say, honestly, it doesn't matter if you believe in Arminianism, Calvinism, Trinity, I'm sorry, it doesn't matter. It matters if you accept the gospel when we can say that honestly with each other, we remove the whole brick and mortar argument the LDS use. All we've done is just joined it and tried to then compete with it. Do you understand that? To suggest that these disputable doctrines matter and the continuance of a historical brick and mortar church matters, then what is the correct doctrine and where is the historical church located? Because that's the fold I want to come back to, as David suggested. Or, David, could it be the fold is really, truly, truly, like the Bible says, just made up of individual believers who construct the body of Christ? We have the toenails, and we have the foot, and we have the hands, and the eyes, and the ears, and the body is made up of these believers strewn throughout the world, and it's not physically maintained. Pastor Wallace intimated that I think I'm the only one in 2,000 years who has realized these things. <laughs> Listen, quite the contrary. True believers and followers of Christ since Constantine and before have for nearly 2,000 years pursued Christ by the Spirit and have shunned the trap of organized religion and what men do with it, often to their own demise. Many of them have been killed in the millions, I would suggest. Maybe I, that could be an exaggeration, but it seems like in the millions, those true believers who said, I'm not going to go to your church your authority means nothing to me. And they burned him at the stake. You see, the greatest tragedy that exists, however, between orthodoxy and liberal Christianity, if that's what you want to call this, is that we have all received and believe the same 
good news that we all have, which is the only doctrine that matters in the body of Christ. Isn't that the baseline by which we judge matters and embrace people as spirit brothers and sisters or not? Have they received and embraced the gospel, the good news? I understand questioning Christianity of an ardent LDS member because they teach another gospel. They truly do. The LDS gospel is a gospel of works and righteousness and, and temple commandments and, and other things like that. It's a reversion back to the old. It is another gospel, okay? But there's not one bit of difference between the gospel that I embrace and the gospel that Jason or James White or David or any Calvinist or any Arminianist embraces. We all embrace the same gospel. So maybe we should ask, how does the Bible define the gospel? What does it say? This good news, which is what it is, really. Paul defines it in 1 Corinthians. The gospel being that, one, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. I believe that wholeheartedly. That he was buried. I believe that. That he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. I believe that wholeheartedly. That he was seen of Peter and then of the twelve, and that after he was seen of 500 brethren at once. I think that, believe it, Completely. Teach it. That's the good news. I think the Bible, specifically the writings of Paul, adds a couple more factors to the good news. Paul suggests that these are included in the good news of the gospel. What are those two things found in Romans? Justification by faith. Stand accused. Completely by faith. In the author and finisher of our faith, Christ Jesus. Sanctification by the Holy Spirit. I absolutely agree that is necessary for the walk of a Christian to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So biblically speaking, I see the gospel being summarized in these seven points. I assure you I'm sold out to those seven points. So how can we ever attack and criticize and shun, turn a blind eye, don't answer the calls from, stop the emails going to, badmouth each other behind our back because... Uh, Pastor Wallace is a Calvinist or that so-and-so is an Arminianist and I'm, a, I'm a, a reconciliationist? Let me ask yourself. Ask yourself the question. Is accepting the man-made concept of Trinity, it's not in the Bible, it's a man-made construct, whether it's true or not, the construct, is that part of the gospel? Is it part of the good news? People act, they say it is, you have to, it's not, Paul never teaches that, Jesus never teaches it. Yeah, they can say, well, they indirectly teach it, they really don't. They just teach it, but they say the gospel is a different thing. Is believing Jesus is going to come back or has already come back part of the gospel? Not that I can tell, not that I can tell at all is whether someone thinks God is going to punish unbelieving people forever and ever and ever or not part of the good news. I don't think so. I think these are disputable matters. Can't prove any of them. Cannot prove any of it. We can make conjecture and suggest. So why are those of us in the body biting at each other's back and contending with each other over unknowable, disputable matters I understand teaching and criticizing reconciliationism that I teach. I understand criticizing the idea that God does not punish, uh, that God uh, does, that I say God does not punish people forever. You can criticize the tenant, 
But to say that people are not believers because of these disputable matters, that's where I'm trying to say we've got to change that. Perhaps an illustration, we'll wrap this up and then we'll open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. Let me give you an illustration just to kind of try to make sense of this, and I don't know if I can. Just put a time, just put a line here. We're going to call this line the spectrum of human belief and unbelief. At the left, we are going to put the most vile unbelievers, and at the right, we are going to put those who believe in the gospel, okay? So this is who we have, those who believe in the gospel. And in that, from, from the right to the left, we're going to have the most orthodox down to the least orthodox. And we're going to have the five-point Calvinists. And we're going to have the, who else do I have here? We're going to have the Southern Baptists, and we're going to have the Church of Christ, and we're going to have the non-denoms, and we're going to have the Methodists, and we're going to have the Episcopalians, and we're going to have people, that, the seven people who come to campus, Okay? We're going to have all of that in that spectrum. They believe the gospel. Right next to them, we have those who teach another gospel but claim Jesus Christ. So we have the Jehovah's Witnesses. We have the LDS. We have uh, uh, Scientologists. Who else? Seventh-day Adventists. We have all those who they teach another gospel, but they use Christ in their, in their teachings. And then from there, we have non-Jesus faiths. We have the Baha'i, well, I think the Baha'i, yeah, the Baha'i, we have the Buddhists, we have the Hindus, we have the Muslims, all of that. Then next to them, we have worldly believers, people who like say, and what I mean by that is they don't denounce God, but they don't care about him either. They just say, oh, it's all going to work out. I'm fine. Then we have unbelievers. Then we have atheists, unbelievers are the, the agnostics. And they're like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I really care. Then we have the atheists who say there is no God. And then we have those who are enemies to God who say, not only is there no God, I hate Christians. And I hate really anybody who has to do with God, including Muslims. So we have this whole spectrum here before us. And here we are, those of us who have the gospel, the good news, we could collectively share that good news with people in whatever form you want to add on with your little stuff and leave each other alone because everything from this first section this way needs us. But instead, we spend our time ripping the schnit out of each other and trying to say who's really a believer and who's not, as if it matters. You know, you sit there and judge me and you think it makes a difference, is what a, a writer that I like said. It makes no difference. The Holy Spirit is in charge of this church now that Jesus has ascended. The Holy Spirit does the work in the hearts of men and women. The Holy Spirit is blowing where it wants to blow. It's doing what it wants to do. And it does it according to the will of God, the Spirit of Christ that is moving in people's lives. Calvinist, Arminius, Campus, Reconcilius, Eternal Punishment, None, Trinity, or a belief in one God, and that Jesus was God in the flesh, and when the Holy Spirit comes, it's God speaking, all of that. Can't we leave each other alone? I'm not talking about ecumenism. I'm not talking about one world nation or any of that stuff. I'm just saying, give that a try. So let's take a look at this spot and we'll come back to your calls. One, two, three, one, two, three. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. 
which the Lord has promised to those who love him. All right, we have Matt in, uh, Matt in Philadelphia, PA. Also, someone called in, Jeff called in and said, Psalms 127.1 is a verse to support the spiritual church. I left my Bible out in the car, so I picked up this, uh, this uh, Geneva version, and which someone gave me as a gift. And uh, I just tried to open it and read it. Oh, my word. That thing is uh, heavy. No, no pun intended. Okay, uh, and so also says in 1 Corinthians 3, 4, 5 was the first rebuke of believers trying to start denominations. I hope this helps. And I think if we recall, that was when people were trying to say, I was baptized by Paul. Well, I was baptized by Apollos and all these different things. And they just set that straight. Knock it off. One body full of different parts. Let's go to Matt in Philadelphia. Matt, you're on Heart of the Matter. Sean. Matt. God bless you, sir. How are you tonight? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. Well, listen, I just stumbled upon your show only a few days ago. And, uh, it, you know, I started by watching a couple YouTube clips about the, uh, uh, with a lot of the LDS callers calling in. And uh, I got to witness over a 48-hour period the, uh, the changing of uh, the whole ministry up to where it is now. And I got to tell you, I'm very, very blessed. Man, I'm blessed by you. You know, I, I, I just identify with you so much. And um, I just, you know, quickly want to um, say that there are two things that I always remember as things that identify us as Christians, and it's number one that Jesus said upon this rock, this revelation, that he is the Son of God. I build my church, he said. I believe that identifies us universally, and that Paul said, I saved to hear nothing preached among, uh, I, I, I want to hear nothing preached among you, save Christ and him crucified. And this is how I identify, how I identify us true believers, and these all these other things, I cannot tell you one other brother or sister in the Lord that I know, where I agree with them 100% doctrinally. Wow. My, my question to you tonight is, and I happen to be an eternal optimist, do you believe that the church is moving this way? I mean, everything, you know, everything I hear you saying, man, I identify with it so much, and I feel like the church as a whole, around the whole world, is moving in this direction. We're coming out of the brick and mortar, and I feel like we're responding to that call in, in the book of Revelation that says, come out from among her, mm. come out from among her. How do you feel about that? You know, I hope you're right. That's, all, that's the only feeling I have. I don't have a real good uh, finger on the pulse of the body simply because I'm in Utah. And Utah is a world all unto itself when it comes to both the LDS and the Christian church. So I don't, right. I'm really not that good with what's going on. I really hope you're right though, Matt. You know, it'd be beautiful if we did start saying, look, Enough is enough. Let's focus our attentions on something else. I have a feeling a lot of younger people yeah. in the body of Christ are saying this. Enough is enough now. Yeah. Enough is enough. I'm tired of being bound to this brick and mortar institution. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I think you're right on that. You know, and that's happening, uh, you know, like because my specialty, so to speak, has been with the LDS. That's what's happened to them. Uh, yep. they, they, the, the internet has caused them to look at their history. And I think all the kids who have been raised in the Christian church's brick and mortar, and they've looked at everything and they're saying, you know, everything is pushing against that. And so I hope you're right, my brother. I really appreciate you calling and uh, introducing yourself. Look forward to talking to you again. 
Likewise, brother. God bless you, Sean. Thanks, Matt. Bye. Have a great night. Bye-bye. You too. You know, as with most things in the world, uh, amidst support comes criticisms. One thing I've read in the past few weeks uh, from supporters of uh, different positions is a criticism and a claim that I'm mentally ill and, um, and therefore unworthy of being taken seriously. Now, there's people laughing in here, and I think what they're laughing about is, it took you that long to figure this out? <laughs> Even former supporters of a ministry, when I focused on Mormonism, who were really in there and saying focus on, they are saying things like, if you go back and watch his video, you can see he, he's really losing it. So let me address this very topic for a moment. I really think it's important uh, in the body. In a capitalistic society where conformity is mandated in order to feed the machine, mental illness, instability, disabilities, erratic, ideations, volatility, just plain old artistic temperaments are not tolerated for very long. They can't be because the machine doesn't work. And I would suggest that, that capitalistic societies cater to systems that echo their overall objective of order as a means to produce peaceful returns and that such systems which are like corporate empires and organized religions and governments and educational facilities naturally not only reject the alienated and the odd, but vilify them uh, and their ideas and their behaviors. Often the masses suggest that the square pegs of our society uh, would really be happier if they would truly serve the world uh, as a rounded off being. And that we want you to be happier because you could be more productive and therefore you fit in and you can be used. And as a result, the difficult and the strange and the odd are constantly criticized by the masses as never measuring up and always needing to be fixed. Always needing to be fixed. Even successful difficult ones like, I mean, uh, Van Gogh or Janis Joplin or, or any of the artists who are difficult have always been thought to have had more potential if they hadn't been involved in this thing or if they hadn't been that way. Just imagine what Hendrix could have done if he didn't OD on heroin. We tend to ignore the fact that these types, had they become normal, they never would have created or contributed to the world the work that we love and appreciate them for. Had they been normal from the get-go, they wouldn't have done it. Yeah, they burn out quickly. Yeah, they do things bad or uh, badly, but they do produce in their way. So we tend to ignore that. And even when we look back and we appreciate like the Van Gogh art or whoever, the crazy artists and their contribution to the system, uh, we don't want too many Van Goghs running around, you see. And so we use demeaning labels toward them as odd, and we call them mentally ill and weird and bipolar and emotional and temperamental and passionate and crazy and all that stuff. At the same time, those who have natural ability and skills that feed and benefit the system are told that they are stable, are told that they are productive, they're told that they're accomplished, you see. And the trouble with the approach is that when we embrace this myopic thing, we ignore the importance of friction and the dialectic and divergence and uniqueness and oddness that the difficult people provide in the face of the system of things. And so listen, stability has its merits. Granted, 
conformity and people who fit that mold by God's hand. I'm so grateful the people who pilot the plane I drive are not insane. And I'm so grateful the people who operate on our bodies are very, very full of serotonin. They're really even keeled. Don't misunderstand me here. But um, the instability, the nonconformists, the mentally ill have a place too. It is the discomfited and the rebellious who challenge archaic notions and who say, this doesn't feel right to me. I don't understand this. And things change because they aren't made to just go along. And, but above all, in the body, it teaches all of us to love and to live more in harmony. And it brings, you know, balance and unity and all that comes. Harmony comes through this love, not through conformity. Religions will try to make conformity the things that gives us the appearance of getting along in harmony. But it's only really loving and it's only real harmony when there's non-conformity and love exists. Take all the weft threads in the world. If you don't have the warp, you'll never have a fabric. And so am I mentally ill? Abso-freaking-lutely. And I don't say that, you know, as like, <laughs> I... I am mentally ill without, you know, ask anybody who's known me. I have been since I was a child. I was worse as a teen. I'm manageable, but still presently crazy as an adult. I just am. And like your ability to do higher math or your ability to wait patiently at a stoplight or to run a successful corporation, God has gifted you with those skills. He's given me something that all it is is the, an ability to see the inane and to conceive and see acceptable and alternative approaches to life on this earth, especially when it comes to religion. That's my gig. So I applied it when it came to Mormonism. I was in that system, and it's what made me say, screw this. This is wrong. And we did those shows, and you were so stoked on it. And now that same mentality, I really haven't changed. My message has been the same. That same mentality is still there, but now I just look at what's going on around me in the body or in the churches, and the criticisms flow like mad. You think it's because I'm mentally ill that I've decayed? That's what the Mormons said. Can't you see, look in the mirror and see exactly the same accusations that they gave then? So if I, ill as I am, accept your corporate mentalities, your Calvinism, your law and orders and systems of conformity, is it really so wrong for you to accept me and my divergent views, my unorthodox ways, my refusals to conform to the established way and love me along the way? Think about this stuff, because what we're really talking about is not me. And we're not really talking about you. We're talking about loving each other. That is really what we're talking about. And we can dance all around it. If we're not doing it, it's a joke. So we got to have loving for the strange. we got to have love for the normal. we got to have love for the wealthy and the accomplished and the hardworking. And we got to have love for the lazy and the indolent and the thieves. And the, it's just got to be love. It's the only way that we're going to really be known by this world. Uh, you know. All right, let's go to Mike in Sweden, and then we're going to go to William in Pocatello, Idaho. Mike in Sweden. How you doing, brother? Hey, good. How about you, brother? I'm doing well. 
Good. Hey, I just wanted to call in and let you know uh, that you are not mentally ill. <laughs> okay? Thank you. <laughs> and I love the show that you had last week, and uh, blessings to your daughter and your wife for standing up and being emotional. I was emotional then, too. Thanks, man. We love you, brother. We really do love you. And I wanted to point out something. You know, I've ever since I came out of Mormonism two years ago, called in on your show, and ever since then I've just been studying, 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 trying to be a seeker of truth, just like you encourage, and I appreciate that. Awesome. I've listened to John MacArthur, Calvinist, you know, John Piper, all these guys, Greg Laurie, Arminian, you know, all these different things. I listen to Pastor Wallace, too. I listen to Matt Slick. I listen to all these different ones. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Hmm. They all have something they error and differentiate between each other anyway. Hmm. And it, it, it seems like it would be so nice if they just took a little bit of advice that you try to portray outward and just seek in truth and light. Maybe listen to each other. Hmm. Maybe look, call into your show and listen to your show, too. It's good with a little shake-up. I think it's good because that's the way that John the Baptist shook up things mm -hmm. to lead the way for the truth and light of Christ. Mm. And so I just want to encourage you that, hey, even though you're sometimes a nutball and I'm a nutball and everyone's a nutball, mm -hmm. hey, that's what makes life so wonderful. You know, thank God that we're in the, in the Lord Jesus and that we seek truth and we keep moving forward. So I, I just appreciate everything that you do. There's one thing that I just have a real hard time wrapping myself around, though. I understand 8070. I understand the coming there. But I cannot get it wrapped around when I listen to Jack Frost and other hyper ex-hyper-preterists. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that God knows everything from beginning to end. And if he does and all things are numbered to him, there must be an end. Mm. It doesn't continue on forever. That's the only point that I'm just wanted to get wrapped up. So I'm still studying that part. But that's a good going, point. Brother. Hey, Mike, I, I can't tell you how much uh, I appreciate your comments. Your, there's several things I appreciate. Your comments, your tone of your comments. You're well uh, versed in seeking. You've listened to different people. You appreciate what they have. You hear differences. I like that you say, hey, the end, I don't get, I don't get not being an end. So you disagree, but the thing I really like is that you're from Sweden. What are you doing there? Yeah, I'm just living here raising eight kids. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Try, tr trying to preach the gospel here. Uh, you know, me and a couple other people were kind of pretty much hated by the Mormons here, but hey, what wow. the heck, you know? Better stir it up a little bit. I've got two little grandsons who are Swedes. Hold on. That was bad. Did time. I lose you? No, I just said I have two little grandsons who are Swedes. And, uh, yeah, I know that. Yeah, so we're, we're big fans of the country. I, I pray God's blessings upon you out there, Mike. Hey, thank you. Thank you, and you too. Thanks for watching. You too. I'll okay. talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. We're going to William in Pocatello, Idaho. He's LDS. William, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hi. Um, I um, am LDS. Yeah. Um, and I served a mission. Well, I'm 19 years old. Um, so I went on a mission and um, then came home early because I got sick. And just while I was out there, the whole time I was kind of questioning the church. But, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I definitely was so glad that I went on a mission. But and just like within these past two weeks, 
um, I've kind of noticed your show and it's kind of brought up the same questions that I've noticed recently. Um, but so I guess my question is, um, so recently I've kind of told my parents that I've been questioning the church and in a way they've been um, wanting me to prove it to them, like my validity and like where I'm getting information from. And what would your response be to that? Well, if they want you to prove it, uh, I would suggest that you, two books. Uh, one is by Grant Palmer. It's called An Insider's View of Mormon Origins. A Grant, Wait, it, uh, that is a great book to give your parents. Just let them read that. There's another, there's another book that is called uh, This Is My Doctrine. Read, who wrote it? No, who wrote This Is My Doctrine? Harrelson, I think his name is, a BYU professor. Definitely, right. definitely those two books. And that way you'll remove yourself from the emotional argument and you'll just let them receive for themselves and those seeds will be planted and the Holy Spirit will be working. You're probably, it, it really gets tough when you're in families. Now, that's not saying you can't do it, but that's how I would approach it by giving them uh, Grant Palmer and uh, Harrelson's book, This Is My Doctrine. All right. Hey, keep Thank going. You. Keep searching, William. Don't stop seeking. God will open your eyes as you seek. All right. Thank you. Okay. God bless you. God bless you. Bye-bye. Uh, I think a Christian is just a sinner who claims the free gift of grace Jesus gave us on the cross. Pretty simple. That's Dan in Logan, Utah. Uh, it says, love you, Sean. Love you too, Dan. And... Uh, don't know you. That's sorry. I had to say that. <laughs> uh, that is a great, uh, a great definition. It's a great definition. My personality just kicks me in the head sometimes. I'm really sorry. Had a guy ask me, uh, give me my best definition of a truth seeker this week. I explained that first of all, there's probably no more important title, in my opinion, uh, a person could have uh, in life, as Jesus himself said to the woman at the well. The hour comes and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship Him. The Father seeks such to worship Him. What? In spirit and in truth. You got to be a truth seeker to worship Him in spirit and in truth. He says God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Um, Hard to do if you're not a seeker of truth, right? How would I define a truth seeker, from, especially from a biblical sense? I would say that a genuine truth seeker will not allow anything to ever come between them and the truths that they discover. Uh, not traditions, not churches, not their pastor, not a television or uh, internet guy, not the praise of men. Uh, a truth seeker uh, will not accept accepted practices that are not true. Uh, they will not accept practices because their parents have accepted them, because their spouse accepts them, or their children, or their family. Not job, not status, not position, not the honors of men, not the luxuries of life, not income. I think when Jesus speaks to the drive or the heart of the truth seeker, he said in Matthew 10, 37, He that loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What he's saying is, a truth seeker does not put their family before me. 
Uh, in Luke 14, 27, he said, Whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What he's saying is a true seeker is willing to bear the cross that comes with the truths that they discover and find. When he said, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, he's saying a truth seeker and someone who represents the truth will not put their personal luxuries ahead of knowing the truth and sharing that truth. Luke 21, 17, he says, you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. He touched on it when the rich young ruler could not part with the riches that he had. He touched on that taproot problem of what many truth seekers find, that the riches of the, and cares of the world will remove them from the soil and they will not, uh, they're not willing to seek and pursue and live that truth. When he told another guy who said, I want to follow you, but let me go bury my father first. He said, let the dead bury the dead. Again, all these things that the world says, the truth seeker says, I just have to seek. Truth seekers would never let anyone, anything, or any idea get in their way of their search. Jesus summarized the attitude of truth seekers in two parables. Matthew 13, 44 through 46, he says, six, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hid in a field. And which, when a man has found, he hides, and for joy he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he has found one pearl of great price, no connection, went and sold all he had. That includes a dog. And bought it. All he had. Because when you find that truth, you will sell out whatever it is to be able to have it. Instead of these stories being a singular event in selling all and purchasing uh, all that we have, which is true, I would suggest that truth seekers, this is a daily event. We are constantly all doing this with what we have. Do we, do we pursue Christ through the truth the best we can, or do we let this weigh more? It's a constant, every decision we make is pursuing Him in spirit and in truth, and letting the things of this world weigh more. So truth seeking to find a committed willingness to sacrifice anything and everything for the truth, capital T, which is Christ Jesus. Um, Chet, Chet uh, wrote in, and I'm not going to read it. He says, regarding the top of the Trinity, I think you're on the right path. He's been a oneness uh, Pentecost. He's been a oneness person, modalism. He's been in the Trinitarian belief, and he's come to follow something called the Trinity Delusion. And see, Chet, the problem I have with criticism of the Trinity is almost everybody who criticizes the Trinity says Jesus is not God. I completely reject that teaching. Jesus was God in the flesh, is God in the flesh. So because I don't like the word Trinity, and I don't believe the construct when it's applied to the Holy Spirit, uh, the God in the flesh, and when Trinity people who fight the Trinity, they always bring this argument in, he was not God. That is where I absolutely could never go because all of the things he says allude to the fact of who he was in his nature. So that's part of the problem that we have in that discussion. Mark wrote, if you have love, you have nothing. First Corinthians 13, love needs no knowledge of a person. It just loves. God's love isn't found in a book. It's found in our hearts. And it's what the world is so desperate for. When Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, he revealed himself in love. He didn't bring condemnation. He offered her spirit needed words, not needed words, but life. Too many Christian brothers use the word love 
like the priests that crossed the road when they were confronted with a need. They never know what it really means. True love is always action. I could not agree more. It is an action. To say that he doesn't need to know, to say that someone doesn't need to know if they're a Christian uh, to love them is denying the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, I don't think we can ever go wrong with loving too much. And I think probably, if you're referring to Pastor Wallace, uh, I think he would agree with that. Uh, it was probably he was caught in the moment and uh, give him the benefit of the doubt. Adnan brings a really good point up that came up last week. Uh, he's out in California. He said, I recently saw a video of you and Pastor Wallace. One thing struck out a little more than others. Pastor Wallace pointed out that you were wrong for believing the idea that a Christian who willfully sins but loves or has faith in Christ is still a Christian. And he took that from that, and so did I. Uh, he says, Pastor Wallace used the story of the lesbian that you brought up, and he said that you were wrong for implicating that she could still be a Christian if she lives as a lesbian because she is willfully committing sin. Well, he goes on, Edna, and he says, I'm going to show you something, how we are all uh, committing sin all the time, including Pastor Wallace, he's sure, and, uh, and me, and probably the rest of you. If you are involved in technology at all, have you ever gone onto a website or you gone on with your phone or you tried to download some software and this thing pops up and it says, please accept or decline. And if you accept, you're accepting that you have read all the uh, terms and conditions and you click that. You say, I have read all the terms and conditions by getting this software, this download, whatever it is. And, and Adnan points out, nobody reads, well, maybe not nobody, but most people do not read every term and condition in those long, long things. We just say we do, and we willfully lie. We willingly lie. Now, you might think, well, that's not lying. I'm lying to a computer, but that goes to somebody. It's a lie. So he says, now, if you believe that willful sin equates to unforgivable sin, here's how you can approach the dilemma, and he gives us first point. You can repent. Technology is obviously of the devil and therefore must be abstained from in all aspects of life because the devil is using those contracts to get Christians to willfully lie. So you stop using technology. That's the first thing. Or, two, you repent, and from here on forward, you must actually read the entire contract every single time it is presented, before clicking on the agree button. I would suggest that you would have to go back to repent properly and you would have to go back and read all those other ones that you said you read that you didn't. This is his point, it's a great one. Third approach, much more biblical approach he says, is to accept the fact that a Christian is not a Christian based on their lifestyle or whether or not they commit sins, willful or otherwise, but rather based on two commands, faith, love in Jesus Christ and love for all mankind. Do not learn or focus on being sinless, Christian. Instead, learn to love and focus on having stronger faith in Christ in all aspects of your life. That is so dead on. It is exactly the point, you see. I love that. Somebody else, and I'm going to use myself in this example, after the thing last week, uh, came up to me and said, Sean, I want to talk to you about this idea that, of the lesbian. We use the lesbian because that's the example that came up. You might be a gossip. You might be hateful in your heart or envious or jealous or unforgiving. Or this person happens to be the lesbian. And the comment was made that no true Christian will willfully commit sin, right? And so uh, the person came up to me and said, Sean, you know, I want you to know that you're disqualified. This was in jest from teaching the gospel. Why is that? 
Well, I've noticed, Sean, that uh, in the past, uh, you've been kind of heavy. And uh, so that is probably the result of overeating, wouldn't you say? And I say, well, yeah, it, it is. And the Bible is clear, and it is clear, that the sin of the children of Israel, one of their sins was gluttony, that they needed to repent of. Now, Sean, she said, you have been teaching, and you have not overcome that gluttony to some extent. You willfully, like a hog, wallow in the gluttony, and you, you are large, and you should be smaller, so you're disqualified for willfully engaging in a practice that, that renders you, you uh, unqualified to teach the Word of God. It's a perfect example for the argument that when someone willfully sins, they are disqualified from being a Christian, let alone being a teacher. The point is we all sin. We're sinning constantly in this flesh. And when we set up a system that says, no, you have to be holy and righteous, it's a lie because there's nothing about our outward external stuff that's going to be holy and righteous. We're holy and righteous through Christ Jesus by the Spirit. And it's by the Spirit that gives us the license to teach. And it's by the Spirit that gives us the right to be Christians and to appeal to Abba Father. You see the difference between what religion will try to suggest with all the obedience and rules and regulations to be acceptable by God and then what God is? You couldn't do it, world. I love you so much, I'm sending my son. He will do it. Look to him. And the sins of the flesh will go away as you look to him. We're not preaching antinomianism, which is lawlessness. All we're saying is, let Jesus do the work and he will take care of it. And if it exists to a certain degree or another in your life, that's not what saves you. What saves you is your faith. Join us next week as we get deeper into our subject of the Bible today and how to read it. See you next week here in Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy On the wind And I won't become This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know, and I can feel the light.